As was mentioned earlier, we are so thankful and appreciative that God has allowed us the opportunity to assemble and to gather like this. As I look over the audience, as Gary mentioned earlier, our membership and visitors alike have gathered together today on this first day of the week. As a part of our service, of course, we do wish to give appropriate respect for the nature of the Word of God. And for the next few moments, let me encourage you to turn to that third chapter of the Gospel according to John. And let's spend a few moments and recollect that time when Nicodemus came to Jesus. As he came to Jesus, it is a particular episode with which we're reasonably familiar but nonetheless so fraught with profoundness and so fraught with a number of matters that touch us in very dramatic ways. These opening comments then may well be in order for you and I to consider over the next very, very short few moments. In this past week, as we read together from the Gospel according to John, we noticed that this episode of Nicodemus occurs rather early in the book, but it is by no means the last time we shall encounter this gentleman named Nicodemus. In fact, he appears not only in an extended way in chapter 3, but we'll encounter him again in chapter 7 and finally in chapter number 19. In every instance, we gain a renewed appreciation for this gentleman, and today we'll be able to continue our discussion of him by at least broaching it in a way like you could see with me here. It is a captivating passage in many ways. In fact, the other two are as well. And in due course, we shall discuss them briefly each this morning at its proper location. Nicodemus. I would submit to you that one of the things we might be able to do to utilize it, to draw some lessons for our consideration, might well be to divide our discussion into a number of sections. First of all, let's give some thought to the gentleman himself. What does the Word of God inform us about Him? And perhaps that will speak volumes about the way in which you and I may find ourselves or even others as they are either near or distant from Jesus. First of all, the man himself. The word Nicodemus literally means a conqueror. As you look up the nature of that initial word, we find then that here was one who was named in a way that seemed to give vitality to the notion of conquering. Maybe his parents anticipated for him a very powerful, lively, influential kind of life. But at the very least, we can make this comment. The text is very quick to immediately inform us he, by way of association, was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were individuals known for their separation. In fact, that's really one of the basic meanings of that word. They, in fact, looked upon it like I've tried to inform each of us here. They sought by virtue of external living and the nature of their choices and pursuits in life to put distinction between them and those not devoted or dedicated to God. As they made that, often they erred in the sense of making only external choices and not so much internal ones. But perhaps that's for a different subject in time than will be ours this morning. At the very least, we can appreciate this. They did recognize very strongly the oral traditions attached to the early books of the Old Testament. They did look with favor, of course, on Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, but they thought that there was an oral tradition that accompanied it. And therein, they sought often for the basis for their works. They believed in angels. They believed in the resurrection. They, in fact, were looking for the Messiah. 
They were looking for the one who they thought the Old Testament foretold. They did not think Jesus was He, of course. As you might give appreciation quickly, that brings us then to Nicodemus. The next description of him is this, a ruler of the Jews. Now that phrase isn't reserved for just everyone in the New Testament, is it? When we do encounter it, it seems as if there are certain contexts that suggest this. That was reserved for those who had a very influential standing amongst the Jews and quite likely may well have referred to those that were members of that ruling council of the Jews, namely the Sanhedrin court, the Sanhedrin council. If that be true, that will only deepen our respect for Nicodemus. But certainly it's fair to make this final set of definitions and comments. The Sanhedrin was that particular body that had the charge of trying individuals who claimed to be prophets and who claimed to be certain religious leaders. And it was their duty to find whether they were true or false beneath the banner of, of the old law of Moses. And thus they wielded a significant amount of influence. No wonder at the bottom of that slide. Notice what is said of Nicodemus in John chapter 7. In verses 45 and following of that chapter, we have there an instance in which a command had been given to the officers to go and bring Jesus. But when the officers came, they were amazed at the Lord's teaching. So much so that they said, never a man has spoken like this. In fact, they did not arrest Him. And when they returned to give an answer to their superiors, the superiors were rather upset. Why didn't you bring Him? It was on that occasion that Nicodemus raised his powerful voice and said, Isn't it our means whereby we do not accuse someone before we hear him? Nicodemus sounded a voice of reason, a voice of consideration that you do not pronounce someone guilty before you hear their case and before you properly give ear to that which are the circumstances. It would seem on that occasion that Nicodemus' words were such that they had a powerful influence. I think among the least things you and I could say, this man Nicodemus was one who in fact was a very powerful figure. And yet he had a desire, as we shall see next, to come to the Master himself. Let's turn our attention to that and develop that thought more fully as well. What about the circumstance, particularly here, with his visit with Jesus? The text goes on to say in verse number 2 of John chapter 3, The same, that is Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night. That little phrase alone has so often been the subject of a number of discussions. Why did Nicodemus choose to come at night? Why did he make a choice for that time of day for his discussion and conversation with Jesus. Very simply, the inspired scriptures do not say. It would be a bit of an error on our part to assert that we know. There are a number of possibilities. Maybe he was a very busy man and so too was Jesus and maybe the night was that particular time when he felt as if a conversation would be less disruptive to both he and Jesus. Maybe with all the people coming to Jesus to be taught, to be healed, maybe that was the time of day when He had best access. Maybe it was that He wished under cover of night to conceal His interest in Jesus while being Himself a Jew. Any of those is a possibility. The Scriptures do not tell us which, if any of them, is correct. 
it is in light of that, we could certainly say, when he came, he made a very respectful address. Verse number 2 says, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles, these signs that thou doest, except God be with him. A remarkable statement in many ways, isn't it? Here was a very powerful and influential figure, and yet when he came to Jesus, when he came before this one whom he clearly respected, he addressed him as rabbi. That phrase means teacher. It has reference to those who occupied a very noteworthy position of teacher. And it says, we know. Here was something he asserted that was clear by observation. We know that thou art a teacher come from God. How, Nicodemus? No man can do these signs, these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Already the Lord had engaged in enough miraculous activity, enough very powerful and poignant teaching to confirm in the mind of Nicodemus there was something about this man that he was, of course, from God. Maybe at this point as you and I pause and give ear to the respectfulness with which Nicodemus addressed Jesus. Maybe you can appreciate these statements. You see, the miracles were having the purpose and the justification which God had in mind for them. That was the whole purpose of miraculous activity, wasn't it? To authenticate the message that was being delivered and to, in fact, give the ear to those that would have a desire to learn more about the same message that those individuals preached. In Mark chapter 16, verses 19 and 20, we find there a very clear statement about the impetus, the motivation for those miracles, and we find here that was in fact having a proper influence upon Nicodemus. Put yourself for a moment in his position. You come to Jesus by night. Now Nicodemus was a knowledgeable man of the law of Moses. He was charged with defending it, maintaining it. And yet he comes to confer with Jesus. Maybe he had a desire in light of what we'll learn in chapter 7 to just appreciate more thoroughly what it was that the Lord clearly taught. At the very least, we can make these comments. Nicodemus was keenly interested not just accepting what others said about Jesus. He wanted to know for himself what was the circumstance. That's a vital lesson for anyone even today, isn't it? You see, mankind can be misled, and mankind can be in error, and mankind, due to his own prejudice, might well be at fault. Nicodemus wasn't interested in hearing what others thought about Jesus. He, in fact, took the liberty, despite what other kinds of influences there might be, to come himself personally and learn from the Master himself. Those comments near the bottom are certainly appropriate. What great advice for each of us to ever search the Scriptures whether those things are so. What about those circumstances that I just mentioned there in Acts chapter 17? We find that noble example of those in Berea. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they searched and they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily whether those things were so. In addition to what they were taught, they had a keen interest, did they not, in learning whether or not that really was what the Scripture set forth. 
legions have been the mistakes and the errors that have in fact engulfed the human family due to the human family's failure to not seek the source. Notice again there in Proverbs chapter 14, even in the Old Testament, we have statements on that occasion, Proverbs 12, 14, as well as Proverbs 16, about the fact that the heart of man can be so deceived. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Maybe in fairness, we have to be very admirable in that regard to Nicodemus. Some of the comments he made aren't always that admirable to us, but surely in light of his desire to come to the source, may I ask about all of us, and yea, even those whom you and I may know. Isn't it true that sometimes we fail in making sure we go to the source? May we ever, in fact, have that as our desire to recognize that therein are the words of life. Did Jesus say that in John 6 verse 63? And isn't it true that we have other statements that in this word you and I enjoy the cleanness that is made available to us? John 15 verses 3 and 4. It is a great thing to see a man who in a great position of leadership is willing to come honestly to the source and ask about his character. You might be aware that this very week, this past week I should say, perhaps the most notable astrophysicist living in our day made the statement, there is no God. I can't help but wonder, how often has he ever read this book? Now, I've never talked to him, have no idea, so I would wish to give him the benefit of the doubt. But if you listen to his interview and the references to which he makes and the statements that he affirms, it would appear that he has no consideration of worthiness at all to this book. His statements are almost denigrating in many ways to folks like you and me. But I would point out, here at least in Nicodemus was a man who at this point came to the source apparently with honesty and openness and wished to know really what he had to say. The very bottom statement of that slide makes this one final thought. The Word of God does stand as such a perfect and pristine thing, doesn't it? Acts, or rather Hebrews 4 verse 12 still reads, For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of joints and marrow, soul and spirit, and in fact is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Those opening statements of that verse are still so telling. The Word of God is quick. That literally means it's alive. You and I today read many things that quite frankly are dead. They are no longer living in the sense that they have the impetus and power to make a rightful and positive influence in life. But yet, the Word of God, despite the fact it was written so long ago, it still is ever needful ever vital, ever essential, because it provides the solutions to every major problem in life. You'll notice in light of that statement, this man Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. As he had these discussions with Jesus, what is it that comes before us next? May I suggest to you, what about the Lord's initial reply? We have studied about Nicodemus coming, and we have at least addressed the possibilities of the challenges that set before him. How was it the Lord initially responded to him? Please look with me at verse number 3. 
Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You and I might initially be a bit surprised at the Lord's first reaction. Here was a man who, in the course of the evening, had come to him, and clearly those statements that Nicodemus had first made were extremely commendable. We know you're a teacher from God. Nobody can do these miracles except God be with him. The Lord's first reply wasn't immediately to commend him, praise him, but rather was to say, Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 3, Except a man be born anew or again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The first two words then that we find, verse number 3, Verily, verily. That's the King James way of saying truly, truly, or it is certainly of a truth that. And thus that which follows we appreciate, as we would always expect from Jesus, to be a matter of extensive truth, of course. But we notice He says, except. First word was the word except in that next clause. We know that word except sets before us an absolute proclamation of requirement relative to the object under discussion. Notice that the object under discussion, verse number 3, seeing the kingdom of God. That would indicate that Nicodemus was such that Jesus could read his heart. Jesus was able to appreciate he did in fact have a desire to be right with God. And so the Lord's first statement to him was Nicodemus. In order to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. It is necessary for there to be a birth, a rebirth, if you will. No wonder in light of that, the exclusive, required, essential nature of rebirth. Amazing to give thought to the interesting way the Lord states that and the way that Nicodemus took it. I would ask us to develop it perhaps like this. As you and I think then about this matter of seeing the kingdom of God, let's pause and ask, wouldn't you and I today still be quick to say that seeing the kingdom of God is a matter of great import? Now we know that kingdom, of course, otherwise is identified for you and me as the marvelous church of our Lord. In fact, Jesus uttered such in Matthew 16, verses 18 and following. Here we find, unless a man... Be born again. He cannot see the kingdom of God. You'll notice an interesting usage of that word see. The object of the thought of that word see, of course, you and I know we can use our physical eyes to appreciate by way of physics and optics the things that go on about us and the way our eye operates to let us perceive and appreciate. The Lord used the word see here in the sense of experience. In the sense, and it's, it's used that way other times as well. You can't be a member. You can't enter into. You can't experience then the blessings that come with the kingdom of God except Nicodemus. You be born again. When you and I think then about the attribute of rebirth and the way that that has frequently been stated and discussed through the years, maybe it brings us to Nicodemus' initial reaction. Nicodemus in verse number 4 said, How can a man be born when he is old? 
Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus took that statement by Jesus in the sense of attachment to a physical birth. Jesus, how is it that a man can be born again? Can he somehow enter the second time into the womb of his mother and therefore experience a birth? You and I know that had no part in what the Lord was speaking. And yet Nicodemus, though a ruler of the Jews he was, and though a Pharisee he was, and though schooled and trained in the features and matters of Old Testament law of Moses, he nonetheless had the nerve to ask the Lord questions like that. Was Nicodemus serious in asking them? Was he just so confused he didn't know what else to ask? It seemed clear he had little understanding of the thought of, of the birth of which Jesus spoke. Can a man enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? How thankful you and I can be that in reaction to that, the Lord provided an extensive statement, one that elaborated. As you and I come to the bottom of that slide, look at the way in which we see Jesus state this. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, verse 5. There's those same two words again, verily, verily. Truly, truly, Nicodemus, it is certain of a truth that. And then he says, except. There's that word except again. From the very lips of our Lord is a powerful and strong and restrictive condition, isn't it? The human family is so often interested in, in fact, sharing and extending opportunities far beyond the bounds of scriptural precedent. We find here the Master Himself asserted, except. Who is man to set aside the, the exception? Who is man to find supposed ways to present loopholes around it? And you and I know no man has that right. Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit. Verse number 5, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. As we proceed to build some thoughts relative to that last set of statements, let's proceed to it by virtue of this. In John chapter 8, verses 51 and following, we find on that occasion a set of passages that help us see the usage of the Word as it helps us understand it both there and here. That nation, that notion of experience, I should say. And with it, that leads us directly to this profoundness we now see in verse number 5. With that in mind, let's then develop that in some, in some detail as follows. Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit. You might keep in mind with me that as we describe this, again, the object is seeing the kingdom of God. And you may notice that the Lord in verse number 5 attached the word see to that word enter. That helps us understand well, doesn't it? To see the kingdom of God is a description of entering it. How can one enter the kingdom? Is it done by virtue of men and women or others as they make particular activities or statements? Is it based on a monetary gift? In the long ago to Nicodemus, Jesus put it like this, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. When you and I think about the entrance ultimately into heaven, the blessedness of living in favor with God while here on earth, 
we are aware of the fact that it begins in a very fundamental fashion with a passage like the one before us today. As we develop it, perhaps we notice what are the elements to which then the Lord refers? Except a man be born. That same birth he had mentioned in verse 3 and the one that Nicodemus misunderstood in verse 4. That same birth the Lord said here in verse 5 involves water. Water. We know very well the importance and significance of water in a number of ways. But notice here it has significance, of course, in this matter of birth. Spiritual birth. When a woman brings forth a baby... We know that there's water even in relation to that, but that has nothing to do with the thoroughness, of course, of the birth to which the Lord referred here. He's discussing spiritual birth. In fact, you might want to hold your finger there and look back two chapters with me to John chapter 1. Early on in the book of John, we find this statement. John chapter 1, beginning in verse number 11. He came into His own, and His own received Him not. But as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name, which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And we notice even there the usage of this word born. And so now in chapter 3 we find this more extensive presentation except a man be born of water and of the Spirit. No wonder then we so often find references and how sweetly we find them, reminding us of the place of water in that plan of God's birth into the kingdom. I would ask you to notice in Mark 16, 16, another one of the gospel accounts even, where Jesus Himself made the statement, not unlike what He made here. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. And that baptism, we learn, of course, involves much water. John chapter 3, verse 23. It is a place where burial takes place. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. It is a very place in which we appreciate the operation of God. Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12. And thus water, indeed. No wonder Peter then with such majesty in 1 Peter 3 verses 20, verse number 21 could say, The like figure wherein to even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That takes on an entirely new and heightened appreciation when we appreciate the context in which that's found. Peter in the verses just prior to that one had been discussing the flood of Noah's day where there was much water. And he says the like figure in the same way that there were eight souls saved aboard an ark then. The like figure is the very figure whereby their souls saved from the terrible flood of sin now. And it involves water. And thus, you and I would be quick to cast a strong spotlight based on John 3 verse 5 toward the matter of baptism. That which involves water, that which is in fact the matter of entering the kingdom, that which is this matter of spiritual rebirth. The marvelous matter attached to that baptism is then one that you and I see as that key of entering the kingdom. As often as perhaps you and I have 
been involved in positions where we've heard discussions. Notice then that repentance alone is not the matter of seeing the kingdom. Belief alone is not the thoroughfare through which the kingdom is experienced, and neither even is confession. Those are prerequisite to baptism, but it is in baptism where we encounter this birth of which the Lord spoke. Except a man be born of water, he cannot enter the kingdom. Today, then there are multitudes who seemingly are of position to downplay or at least lack the forcefulness attached in the Scripture to baptism. But you and I hold high that banner and preach it just like the apostles in the book of Acts did, just like those other first century individuals. Perhaps in light of that, you notice we do come to the next element. For we have this same idea highlighted in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. As Paul spoke to the church in Corinth, he to them said that it is in baptism that you're baptized into the kingdom. That's a perfect harmony then with this text in John 3, 5. It is in baptism then that you come into that kingdom. That leaves us with this remaining element. In John 3, 5, he said, not only in relation to the water, but also, he said, except a man be born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so now we come to consider, during the final part of our lesson, the features attached to the Spirit. I would ask you to notice that in the context that follows, verses 6 and following there in John chapter 3, we find many more references to the Spirit. The leadership of the Spirit, the works that are seen by virtue of the Spirit, the appreciation of that which the Spirit makes possible. Time this morning will fail us to look at all of those in detail, but might we say that when the Lord said to Nicodemus, except a man be born of water and the Spirit, he affirmed in his mind the fact that it is that leadership of the Spirit as set forth in the teaching of the Spirit, that which is the wonderful message of goodness attached to salvation from sin, coming through the nature of Christ Himself. Perhaps with that in mind, notice so many other places that we seemingly find that thought mentioned. Ephesians chapter 1, the promise of the Spirit, verses 13 and 14. The circumstances attached to Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12, wherein the Spirit again is mentioned and introduced. Maybe there's no finer commentary on that at all than the closing verses of the book of Titus. Since that reading is so short, let me just ask you to notice Titus chapter 3, verse number 5. And listen to the way there the inspired apostle describes with us the statement of this leadership, the baptism, if you please, that comes with the Spirit. I'll begin reading in Titus 3, verse number 4. But after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. As Paul identified there, it says He saved us. And thus, here was a circumstance in which individuals were forgiven from sin, sins remitted, and yet in Acts twenty-two sixteen, 16, that happened at Paul's baptism. 
In Romans chapter 6, it happened at the baptism according to the Roman brethren. Thought is, this renewal of the Holy Spirit, this regeneration that took place, is the very rebirth to which Jesus referred as He spoke to Nicodemus. I realize I stand before many who have already experienced that rebirth. A marvelous occasion in which you, in fact, experienced this birth Jesus discussed on this occasion. Came forth into the kingdom with a new life and new vitality and new vigor. But may you and I then live like that until, of course, the time of our demise or leaving this particular place called earth. Maybe finally in light of all of that. What a great necessity you and I then see in the activities that Jesus referenced in regard to Nicodemus. Except a man be born of water and spirit. If it might be today that there's someone here who has not experienced that rebirth. At this point you are still on the lost side of baptism. You are in fact an individual who to this point has kept yourself distanced from following the, the in obedience these commandments. Today, there will never be a better day than this one. No better day than this 28th day of September 2014. If we could be of help to you today, just as the Lord told Nicodemus, entrance into the kingdom, maybe as we finally observe this, Nicodemus apparently was so overwhelmed and overcome by the honesty, the urgency, the sincerity of the Lord's statements, he continued to be a follower of the Master. And by the time we reach John chapter 19, he in fact aided in the burial of the body of Jesus after the Lord's crucifixion. Though a Jew and a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews he was, he understood that there was a man from God. He was Jesus. And he listened apparently with intentness to the Lord's teaching. Today, if you are in position, you too need to listen with intensity but to obey and follow that which He says. If you at one time have known that regeneration, at one time you walked in this lovely light of the blessing of the Lord's teachings, but at this point, the very thing that was told to Nicodemus is just a very, very distant memory. Maybe you've forgotten your first love. You no longer, in fact, uphold it before others. Others about you don't recognize the fact that you're a Christian. Then there's a problem. Why not today come and ask for prayers of brethren? And why not, of course, confess your errors to God who has promised to forgive them? Nicodemus sets before us a rather remarkable example. This concluding page simply allows us to notice Nicodemus' reaction. I'd like to close the sermon by asking for our reaction. Are you and I desirous to come to Jesus no matter what it takes? be it daytime or night, be it challenges and obstacles that may come before our way. Apparently Nicodemus was willing to allow his association to Christ usurp all of them. May you and I be that wise. If we could help you today in your coming to the Master, it need not wait till tonight, of course. It could be right now while together we stand and while we sing.